1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, one of your hosts. Today we'll be talking to Lucy DeLapp, reader in modern British and gender history at Murray Edwards College, Cambridge University, about her new book, Feminisms, A Global History. Lucy's a gender historian writ large. Her first book, The Feminist Avant-Garde, Cambridge 2007, examined the development of feminist ideas in the Anglo-American context, tracing the ideas across the Atlantic, She directed her gaze back to her homeland and subsequent publications, The Politics of Domestic Authority in Britain Since 1800, Palgrave 2009, and Knowing Their Place, Domestic Service in 20th Century Britain, Oxford 2011. Then with the 2013 Palgrave release, Men, Masculinities, and Religious Change in Britain Since 1890, Dr. DeLapp explored another expression of gender altogether. Her latest work, *Feminisms: A Global History, due out with Penguin Press later this year, is what we'll be discussing today.
2: Hello, Lucy, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, it's wonderful.
2: I'm very excited. How are you? Glorious day in Cambridge? Uh, it's raining, actually, which is quite helpful for the lockdown. It keeps us all at home.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, I'm in Amsterdam, so rain is, you know, my life. Um <laughs> I'm familiar. It's nice. When the sun is shining, it feels like it's mocking us right now, doesn't it?
2: It does. But we did have an incredible uh, kind of couple of months of lockdown that coincided with an unprecedented heat wave, which was um, uh, actually really wonderful for people who could get out into the sun.
1: (laughs) Making this uh, all a little bit better. It's a very good time to read books, actually, um, as we stay home. So I... Let's, uh, let's get into yours. I want to start by saying how very much I enjoyed this book and how Thank excited you. I am to discuss that. Thank you. That's really kind of you. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering if you could, like, let's start it. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to do this work?
2: Yes. I'm a historian of Britain, although, as you said in your kind intro, I've always kind of looked uh, more broadly to um, transnational elements as well. And um, I was asked to write uh, a book, a kind of introductory book about feminisms, but I wasn't given any kind of brief. And I thought hard about this um, and I considered writing it uh, about just kind of domestic British history. I thought, no, I don't think that would work well at all. I wondered if I should stay in my sort of comfort zone, which is more Anglo-American and also British imperial. Um, and, And then I thought, well, really... There has been an extraordinary um, flowering of literature on global feminisms in the past decade, and I didn't feel that the kind of introductory, um, uh, general um, accounts of feminism really reflected that. So, what really excited me was trying to synthesize and draw together some of those literatures, uh, and you know, for me, that was a massive learning journey about you know writing about contexts that I I I didn't know. Um, and where I was very much relying on the, you know, the wonderful labors of, of other people, and trying to bring those things into dialogue, um, and to see whether there was in fact a global feminist story that could be told, at the same time as trying to, you know, pluralize feminisms and make it clear that there's there's not just one thing called feminism, you know, that that just really inspired me uh, as a project, and I think I I think that historians of of gender and feminism you know we've always been quite able to move across different subfields because you know it's not clear what 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 kind of history we do if you like we're not mm-hmm. just political historians sometimes we get called social historians sometimes we write about culture we write about labor um you know th- we 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 move nimbly across all those different mm-hmm. different realms and i think that gives us a certain amount of um sort of confidence in dropping in on other fields and you know, taking from them and and drawing out uh, stories that that, that unite those fields. So even though it was pretty daunting to try and write something about global history, uh, I I felt as though, um, you know, the field allowed me to do that. And, you know, this is also about my own personal um, history as somebody, you know, very committed to um, exploring what it means to be a feminist, uh, a feminist located in the academy, thinking about what kinds of Feminist interventions I want to make. And also my own um, background. I, I went to school um, as a, a school child, uh, secondary school in Southern Africa, at a very exciting, febrile, extraordinary political time uh, in the late 80s, uh, early 90s. Uh, you know, to be living uh, as I was in a, what was then called the frontline state um, of Eswatini. Um, right on the border of, of, of apartheid South Africa, you know, I, I really um, was living that, um, that struggle up close, if you like, and got very interested in questions of anti racism, social justice, looking at poverty, but also looking at strategies for social change and, and trying to set them into dialogue with questions of gender justice. That that for me, you know, really makes sense of some of my own kind of lineage as a as a as a person and as an intellectual. Oh uh,
1: yeah, that makes great sense because um, the the global work here like is really strong. I mean, I, I want to say like I'm a feminist, a feminist researcher, and I also teach the history of feminism. So you were really writing this book for me. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, but I'm just so happy to have this outstanding new resource because there's. The um, we've had this kind of flowering of thinking about feminism as something other than you know Mary Wollstonecraft to Gloria Steinem. That's right. um, and and uh, but there's not been any kind of really suitable thing to give to our students, and uh, this really this is this is it. This is a great thing. Um, so and I think part of the deal is your structure and the way you organize your ideas. So I want to talk about that. As many a history book is organized, organized like chronologically, earliest stuff <laughs> to yesterday, clear progression. Yep. Um, but you don't do that. You have these eight thematic chapters. Like, how did you make that decision?
2: Oh well, I have to confess that I wrote a chronological book proposal, mm-hmm. uh, and it just bored the pants off me. You know, when I was <laughs> writing it, I just thought, oh, I have to do this. It's going to be a slog, but I'm going to grind this out. I wrote the book proposal. I kind of sat on it for a day or two. I looked at it and I thought, well, if it was that boring for me to write it, <laughs> and if the prospect of writing the book is not exciting me, how's it going to be for a reader? It's going to be just as dull. So I ditched the the, the, the the worthy book proposal, if you like, and I started thinking about what it would be like to write this more as a set of interlocking stories. Mm-hmm really foregrounding that idea of storytelling, of of characters, of peopling the history of feminism and setting alongside the peopling of it also some other kind of quirky stuff like trying to think about sensory history, thinking about how we can hear feminisms, touch feminisms, how we can write material culture in, and um, just kind of thinking about both inspiration and also critical history it kind of worked better for me to do this uh, thematic organization. And it allowed me to do the global in a way that, you know, makes no attempt at comprehensivity. I mean, you could not write a book mm, of yeah. this kind of introductory length um, uh, about the global terrain and not just miss out whole swathes of it. Now, this book also miss, misses whole swathes of it. I mean, I you know, it, it's it does what it does. It's a very patchy account of the global, um, but I wanted to be able to to, to dot around, if you like, mm-hmm. <clears throat> to put different parts of the world into dialogue with each other, in a way that I'm sure some of my more kind of traditional minded colleagues will find disconcerting, but which mm-hmm. I hope is a a fun read and 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 which um, opens up debates that I I don't think I could have done if I had uh, structured it chronologically.
1: Yeah, I, I I think it's masterful. You know, it, we we t- historians tend to think chronologically, of course. And there's a benefit there, but I fear it contributes to the notion that there's some grand narrative of progress in which things have gotten continually better, right? We've developed, and it I'm does it here.
2: does lend itself to that, right? And the whole premise of this book is is against that.'s talking about circularity, it's talking about reuse and hybrid ad- adaptation. you know I, I I've put at the at the center of the book a um a, a metaphor of the idea of mosaics. now, I don't think that any one metaphor is going to be like the the, the, the catch-all for all our insights. And there are some wonderful um, metaphors already out there in um, fe- feminist history, such as you know Karen Offen's idea of lava and eruptions, or um, one that I cite in the book, Nancy Hewitt's wonderful idea of radio waves. Those are those are exciting metaphors as well. But my own kind of mosaics idea, um, I, I wanted to have that sense of. Um, You know, the the little pieces, if you like, that go to make up feminisms that get recombined in different kinds of ways that um, are, you know, are borrowed, are recomposed into new patterns. And some of those bits fall out and get lost and perhaps get completely forgotten. Others, we, you know, we can sort of make out the pattern, but we have to imagine it because maybe the archive doesn't give us the full account. Mm -hmm. Um, Some just get destroyed. So so it, it was a useful metaphor for me of kind of getting us to try and think away from those linear narratives and getting us to think about um, patterning, if you like. Wonderful.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Um, and uh, you're able to do this, I think, as well because of the wide variety, the really delightful textured variety of sources you use. And I think as we go through this kind of chapter by chapter, um, we can talk about that a little bit more. Um, so I'd, I'd like to delve in. So the first two chapters, I think, kind of go together, and they, the dream, they're the they called Dreams and Ideas, and they focus on the lives of women's
2: minds. So you, can you tell me what you do here? Yes, well, um, feminism has um, many faces uh, and many different kinds of dreams, and I wanted to set alongside each other three different um, ways of figuring dreams, all of which were produced... Um, you know, within 20 years of each other in in the early 20th century. So I start off with um, three different narratives. One produced in um, uh, revolutionary early Soviet Russia, Alexandra Kollontai's vision of what love and and, and uh, uh, um, society should look like. That's set alongside um, a, a piece produced in colonial Bengal by um, rokea Hussain, um, who writes about what she calls Ladyland, an imagined um, future where, where uh, women dominate um, and then the progressive era um, uh, United States uh, feminist Charlotte Perkins Gilman um, who writes about what she calls her land um, so there's three kind of fantasies if you like which show feminism not just as a political struggle but as a wish and a, um, a desire for a different kind of future um, but that that can be figured very very differently and of course all of those um, writers are, are kind of working within their distinctive um, contexts and then I try and talk about um, figures who've tried to actualize their dreams. And that um, I um, turn to Pandita Ramabai, um, who worked in Maharashtra state, what, what is now Maharashtra state in, in India, um, to create, um, to actualize her vision of a refuge for, for, for widows, a place of learning, a place of safety, and how, how complicated that is for her to try and set that up. So there's kind of utopia in this chapter, utopia. Imagined utopia worked for, and then you know. Finally, I, I, I then move on to some of the sort of psychic complications of dreams, um, looking at some actual dreams. We don't have that many actual dreams, but you know, feminists um, and activists who've 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 dreamt um, literally about their politics, uh, including a wonderful dream from uh, John Stuart Mill, the nineteenth-century um, British uh, philosopher, about um, uh, you know his sort of. I guess you could say his sexual investments in particular ideas of femininity and how complicated that was for him to um, to think about and, and and dream about. So I mean there's um, you know there's there's an introduction to um, the psychic um, pressures, I guess, of imagining a different a different future and and ways in which that has also um, come out very strongly over the pressures uh, and the tensions around race and sexuality. But that, that's kind of I guess I would say it's a like an overall theme running through the book is the idea that feminists are often asking, not exclusively, but often asking for inclusion into systems of power into institutions, but that you know the story of feminisms is also about exclusion. It's also about you know policing the boundaries. And that comes out very much in this um in this chapter on dreams. Um, to, to remind us of how people's dreams don't necessarily always fit together, and there's a kind of long exploration of Audre Lorde and her uh, criticism of Adrienne Rich, um, which comes out uh, in their dialogues in poetry. Um, so, a sort of you know troubling questions about the, the the problems of dreams. You know, we we cannot just write a, a feminist history which is about wonderful dreams. It has to be about the, <laughs> the slightly nightmarish edge as well. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, would, the, would that that were the world, right? Yeah. Um.
2: <laughs> and then, I mean, I've set that with a chapter which is about ideas because I think we we, we have to accept that, you know, feminism is in an intellectual formation as well, a very diverse one. And that was a chance to introduce some very significant intellectual kind of strands of um, feminist history, thinking about um utopian socialist uh, and Marxist traditions but also you know weaving in amongst that the influence of things like republicanism, constitutionalism, um, radical and revolutionary feminist thinking, black feminist thinking, psychoanalytic thinking and so on so trying to um, uh, give people jumping off points I guess into those various different uh, different traditions and um, setting that in a global story where we think about, you know very well recognized concepts, resources like the idea of patriarchy, and ask ourselves, well, how does that figure in other places? You know what is it like to try and um, uh, draw out as I do in this chapter ideas about um, uh, the gender order and structural gender disadvantage that um, develop in China uh, in the um, early twentieth century around um, terms such as Nanu. A um, you know, which we could translate as patriarchy, but which need to be given their own story in their own context.
0: hmm
2: right. All right, so I think
1: we want to talk then about the next three chapters together. we're feminism on the physical plane, those chapters mm-hmm. are space, objects
2: and looks yeah this I had a lot of fun with these chapters because <laughs> uh, I kind of I find that literature on how um feminisms develop in a kind of in a spatial sense, how they play out in cities or in domestic spaces, how they reclaim certain spaces, mm-hmm. how they might also you know reclaim or repurpose objects. Um, all of that is 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 it's very new. It's very new kinds of approaches and it really helps us move on from um mm-hmm. you know sort of i guess tired or older histories um which see feminism as a kind of series of canonical thinkers mm-hmm. and it takes us um it takes us into a different kind of scale and again the kind of the, the the mosaic metaphor i wanted to to get at that idea of scale you know the the idea that you can go up close to a a mosaic and you can see the really granular detail of the pieces you know the cement that's holding it together what a specific you know gorgeous little piece of glass or ceramic or whatever it might be looks like and then you can step back and you completely lose the sight of that little piece and you get this big picture and in this chapter i'm you know sometimes i'm 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 going very close so i'm looking at specific objects i mean like the speculum for example <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> an object which is both a kind of um you know it, it, we associate it with um the um the very hostile spaces that um have sometimes emerged in the in 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 medicine for women spaces where women have not been listened to where their bodies have been kind of controlled but we also think about the speculum as being reclaimed by the women's movement uh by mm-hmm. it being redesigned so that it's in warm plastic rather than cold metal uh being sold in feminist bookshops being used in consciousness raising groups for women to understand the spaces of their own bodies, and then linking that back into a story of how the speculum was developed in um, slaveholding uh, America uh, by a physician who used it and developed it without their consent on slave women. So trying to, you know, always um, step uh, away from the kind of the, the if you like, the um, the object itself into that wider history. So we can see those big stories of um, enslavement um, uh, or, um, you know, um, the big kind of macro narratives of, of of world history that can help us make sense of something, you know, very, very small, like a specific object. So that was a lot of fun for me. And it's amazing how many kind of feminist things there are, if you like. And it also was a chance to write about a subject that I'm uh, working on in, in other projects The idea of the kind of intersection between feminisms and commerce Mm -hmm. and the way in which it's been hugely important for um, part of the movement to be about women making money, women trading. And so thinking about the kinds of objects that were traded famously as part of the suffrage movement, which was very um, savvy and entrepreneurial at developing, you know, suffrage fans and suffrage um, uh, pins and brooches and hats and handbags and tobacco pouches and all, all sorts um but also in 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 other other places um where um uh feminist trade and 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 really for me it's um uh publishing and feminist magazines and books that i that i love and feel great inspiration for so um you can see that i'm dotting around a lot here um but it, it was it was it was great fun to to look at that and then just to kind of wind up that that section the chapter on looks um uh it is, it is sort of about who does the looking, right? There's a wonderful uh, feminist tradition of thinking about the male gaze. Um, uh, but it's, it's more about um, uh, fashion and dress and you know, what does it mean to dress like a feminist mm-hmm. and how have feminists um, theorized and understood fashion. Um, uh, that's, the, that's the real focus there. And some of that is about reform movements, so dress reform. Um, And, uh, you know, there's some tantalizing um, uh, glimpses we get there of, for example, uh, one of the illustrations in the book, the photo is of um, early 20th century Maori dress reformers who are wearing these wonderful blazers and knickerbockers and shirts. (laughs) Um, but. You know, sadly, I don't know uh, um, how they came to uh, make that that clo- clothing choice, or you know what what meanings they attach to it. But it, it reminds us of how significant dress reform has been. Um, and then um, I, I turn to Islamic feminisms, which is, uh, as I see it, you know, really pressing um, theme to write about because I think in today's um, uh, context, it's hugely important to remember that there are lots of Mm -hmm. Islamic feminisms, that there's a kind of whole rich tradition of thinking about um, uh, uh, feminisms that grow from different kinds of faith traditions. Mm -hmm. So looking at the conflicts over veiling and different kinds of head covering, um, I remind readers that it's not just in um, uh, Islamic contexts that women have adopted head coverings. So I take us to um, 19th century Lima in Peru where Women also covered their heads, um, but uh, in ways that have been widely read as empowering for their freedom to move around in urban spaces. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to, if you like, reread the veil um, as a um, uh, sometimes um, a source of um, control and um, discomfort, but also just as commonly, a source of um, uh, control by women themselves. Mm-hmm. About how they choose to present themselves, and you know, I think it's hugely important um, for 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 you know myself in in Britain, for you in in um, the Netherlands, where there is a huge backlash against mm-hmm. um, uh, visible signs of of, uh, of of Muslim faith and um, enormous state harassment of women who choose to veil. It's really important to develop a a, a, a historical contextualization of that mm-hmm. to understand why um the right to veil needs to be a feminist issue
1: mm-hmm. absolutely and that co- a counter narrative that sees it as control of you know female c- control of their own bodies and
2: that's self-presentation
1: right. that's which right. is something that i think that i loved 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 these chapters um because you can see the way that women on the ground control their lives um it's and there's very much about self presentation. Um, and consumption and kind of the the way that uh this felt very oh, you know, close to home, very like practical.
2: Mm. Oh, it's great to hear you say that. and you know I, I kind of explore the idea in this book of of it, this being a, a usable history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the ways in which I, I hope it's usable is that it it resonates with um yeah, the the, the life experiences that people have had today. The campaigning they may have done, or the campaigning they may be inspired to do by it. So, um, you know, I, I think um, this this particular bit about Islamic feminism is is one of the places where I feel as though yes, the the use of this in today's debates is uh, is very clear. Mm-hmm. Although I also very think much. it's it, it's important, you know, not to write histories that are just about the uses that we have for them today. And so, you know, I I, I also want to introduce readers to to ideas of feminisms that are you know, really quite different from what they may have been um, expecting. There's no kind of, um, you know, genealogy of feminist foremothers here. There's there's some quite challenging um, uh, episodes of feminist history and, and quite other from our today our today concerns.
1: Yeah, we've got some issues in the 19th century with those women, in, just for instance. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, something like the concept of space and how how feminine space and domestic space has been constructed by women and by people who'd like to control women is a good theme across time.
2: You know? Abs- absolutely. And, and you know, thinking critically about, you know, what kind of space is the workplace? Is it a space of empowerment for whom, um, you know, how do people need to sometimes defend themselves from uh, the depredations of the workplace, if you like, <laughs> as well as just claim it? How can women uh, claim spaces for religious worship, for example? I love the case study in um, the chapter on, on on spaces, which is um, about Violet Johnson and her attempts to create a, a, a space for an African American, um, predominantly female, predominantly um, uh, domestic servant congregation in um, in New Jersey, um, faced with a, a very difficult uh, Jim Crow um, mm-hmm. racialized landscape. You know that 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 for me was a like a, a a great chance to go up close to the life of somebody who's not a well known figure. Um, who is representing the leadership of um uh, a woman of color a working class woman um her resourcefulness and her her um her commitment to to creating spaces you know that's that that for me was was uh, inspirational mm-hmm.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Very much.
2: So, shall we talk about the chapter entitled Feelings? Yeah, feelings. Well, this is about um, history of emotions, uh, a, a massively growing field, a really thriving field, which you know I hadn't really seen reflected in any of the existing um, in, introductions to to, to feminisms. Um so, I really wanted there to be a kind of strong um emotional component here, and um I can't do it justice, but I hope I've kind of um you know scratched at the surface of of what we might do in thinking about uh, feminist history as a history of feelings um and this I think is is one that um resonates again very very strongly with some of the campaigning that we see today um for um, for women you know not to be compliant for women not to perform the kind of um you know the emotions that um they're expected to uh, to perform so thinking of somebody like um Deepa Narayan uh who's a um activist against um rape and, and and violence um that women are suffering in India you know who says very clearly women need to make a noise women need to stop smiling so that um uh you know they they do not um perform Sort of conventional femininity, which leaves them um, at risk of violence, as well as, of course, um, noting that the police need to change, uh, Indian men need to change, the state needs to change its policy. But that focus on the, you know, the smile um, and uh, how dangerous it is, which um, Sara Ahmed has has, has um, uh, mm-hmm. talked about. You know, the need for the feminist snap to refuse to smile, to, to refuse to try and make people happy around you, to not put happiness. At the center of your life, Um, you know these are very powerful ideas for us today. And you know to go back historically and to find um, women across you know 250 years also engaging with these ideas of you know what what is it to um, uh, to feel emotions? What kind of emotions should we seek to feel? We see it in you know Henrik Ibsen's uh, um, Dollhouse play. We see it in um the 18th century um uh writer jo- josefa amari barbon who's one of my favorite figures of the of the book actually who was an aragonese um intellectual of the um sort of uh, second half of the 18th century um uh you know they 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 really challenge um uh, the emotional status quo if you like and um so the feelings here are very much of um uh anger of refusal to to emotionally conform but also of love also the ways in which the movement produces positive affects um, of solidarity of love that is sometimes understood as um, uh, you know the kind of um, political solidarity between uh, campaigners but which might also have um, elements of sexual desire of same-sex selfhood and subjectivity um, of maternal love There are so many ways in which love is a great jumping off point into different kinds of elements of um, feminist and women's movements. So there was a chance to talk quite a lot about the kind of distinctive theorization of maternal love that came from Scandinavian feminists um, such as Ellen Key, but also which um, uh, developed in Latin American contexts where there's a sort of particular both Catholic and indigenous spiritual account of um, what a mother might be. Um, so, again, a chance to kind of um, to move between different parts of the um, of the women's movement and think about its emotional, um, emotional truths. Mm,
1: nice. Um, all right. And then we've got uh, the next two chapters are behaviors. Or I'm sorry, then, uh, let's just talk about behaviors. Right.
2: Yeah. OK. So, I mean, there's a chapter on. Action: What it is to take feminist action? What strategies I mean,
1: actions are, the
2: <laughs> are, are there? And you know, th- this this is needed because we just have to keep in the picture the idea that feminisms are about um, uh, both theory and making change happen. And you know, to to, to really bring into view that 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 sense of um, what do people do to, to to actualize their politics, if you like. And and this goes from um, quite familiar stories about suffrage uh, militancy in China and in Britain, kind of well-known um, interventions um, uh, taken up um, in Australia um, in, in by, by later both labor activists and women's liberation activists, um, but also the ways in which a lot of the um, women's struggles and movements around the world are reacting against ideas of militancy and violence and exploring um, alternative ways of uh, making change happen through tactics such as picketing, uh, striking. Um, and striking, of course, extends across the labor struggles um, that women have often been involved with, but also to strikes over sex or domestic work or, you know, proposals to have birth strikes. I'm not sure that one ever, um, uh, ever got off the ground, but, uh, you know, certainly across um, France, the USA, Iceland, there's been all sorts of um, creative innovations around what it might mean to, to withdraw your labor in different kinds of ways. There's, there's a nice uh, thread in that chapter as well on nakedness and um, what it means to strip, um, you know, mm-hmm. set, set across different kinds of um, places from Nigeria to um, South Korea to, um, Australia again, you know, the, the meanings of women's bodies to the Ukraine where femen has been a, um, uh, a recent, um, you know, about 10 years ago mm-hmm. phenomenon. Um, so yes, the, the, thinking about women's bodies and how they are part of the, um, uh, the arsenal, if you like, of, mm-hmm. um, of tactics, uh, of, of making change happen.
1: I think that was, um, I, I liked very much, and I think it's a very clever decision to talk about nudity and nakedness as an action not as a feeling or um you know or as an object but that this is a thing that is done right
2: right and and you know the the kind of relationship between um feminisms and bodies Mm -hmm. is a really interesting one to probe and it comes up again and again because of course bodies are sites of um enormous power and Mm -hmm. um the the, the the feelings uh, the resources the 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 labour um, uh, the the um, the cultural and, and psychological significance of bodies are, are there again and again but of course not all these um, women's movements and, and, and feminisms feel the same about their bodies mm-hmm. um, and we, we need to keep in view the fact that um, you know modest dress and um, feelings of of um, wanting to treat the body in a culturally appropriate way are important too. And there's a lovely example of this. It's one of my favorite kind of feminist objects in the book. Um, a book that was produced, it was published by Kali for Women, which is an um, uh, Indian uh, feminist publisher. And it was a book called Ki Jankari, uh, which translates as About the Body, um, written by rural women in uh, Rajasthan, Um, And it was a book um, produced in the uh, 1970s, which was about um, introducing uh, rural women to um, sex education, to thinking about um, uh, their bodies as a site of struggle, if you like. So thinking Mm -hmm. about marital rape, thinking about um, sex selection that that has worked against female Mm -hmm. fetuses and so on. And what's interesting there is that the body was initially shown naked in the book. And um, when they started circulating that book amongst um, uh, rural village women, the response was that, you know, this book doesn't correspond to our experience of women's bodies. We don't no. actually see women's bodies naked, <laughs> nor, nor do we want to see women's <laughs> bodies naked. So they changed the um, the format of the book to create clothed bodies, but bodies that had little kind of lift the flap um, uh, bits incorporated, so that you could have a look and see what was <laughs> underneath the clothes. And you know that that strikes me as a kind of wonderful um, uh, adaptation of a kind of model of feminist publishing that you know was um, uh, was not working well uh, for the for the women who had uh, you know who, who who were using it, and and a, a, a brilliant. Um, uh, a brilliant attempt to 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 recraft it uh oh. for that local context. Um so yes bodies are um are very present in this book and bodies are absolutely a site of uh of active change.
1: And and negotiation, right? I mean there's this negotiation as well between western feminisms that's its own kind of problematic term but like what how how women interact with their own bodies and is just it's a, it's a really a rich, rich idea, which you handle very well.
2: Yeah, thank, so, you. thank
1: you. So let's, Um, and then your penultimate chapter, Delightful, was called Songs.
2: Yeah, and I, I was hoping that people would be able to listen to feminisms and, um, of course, like one could pick any number of like cultural sites, uh, I don't know, theatre, um, uh, literary production and think about how women have been uh, historically excluded from it Um, and think about how they have also contributed to it. And, you know, for me, music is very important. Uh, I play music myself, and so it was super exciting for me to think about, you know, how do we hear feminisms? And I have to say that kind of goes beyond just music and and, and song, but to think about all sorts of audio components as well. So how do we think about practices such as humming and uh, wailing and moaning um, and keening which have been used as part of protest mm-hmm. culture in prisons on marches in peace camps um, so you know there's a very kind of like diverse um, soundscape I guess of feminism mm-hmm. and um, uh, I, I wanted readers to actually literally be able to hear this so um, there's a link in the book um, to a Spotify playlist which um, has some of my favorite feminist anthems now Spotify does not go back much further than the um, mm-hmm. The 1920s, so it can't cover the whole span of this book by any means, um, and lots of feminist uh, music and song is, is is lost to us. You know, it was it was produced in the moment, or um, it was never recorded. So there's limits to what you can do on Spotify, but nonetheless, the the playlist, uh, which is about oh, six or seven hours long, um, is um, an amazing array of um, feminist music or or music that 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 you know engages with feminist themes. And it was produced by a series of um, social media posts um, in um, seven different languages, which invited um, uh, people to submit the the music that they um, thought of when they they thought of feminisms and the women's movement. Um, So, you know, it's much broader, certainly, than my own musical knowledge would ever have uh, taken it. And, you know, hundreds of people got in touch with me with brilliant suggestions about what can go on it. And it's still very much a work in progress. So, you know, I've 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 put my um, Twitter handle in the book uh, in in a footnote, and and said, you know, any reader who wants to suggest stuff can 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 get in touch, and I'll I'll keep adding to that uh, to that playlist because um, I'd love to you know to know what what do readers think uh, ne- needs to be heard when we think about feminist uh, feminist music.
1: Um, that this is so remarkable in a history book. Right, and at this way that I think you have to maybe even be an historian and to have sat through, you know, those like intellectual histories, just plugged your way through them. And the idea that we <laughs> there can be a Spotify pay- playlist in a, in a serious study is so it's mind blowing and really delightful. God, it's good.
2: Well, I hope I hope, <laughs> I hope people will will enjoy it, and you know, there's there's there really is a rich landscape out there, and I learned a lot. Um, myself about you know, Riot Girl, for example, I've been listening mm, to lots of yeah. fantastic feminist punk. Uh, and you know the way in which Riot Girl has spanned the world from uh, you know uh, West Coast American origins to um, uh, Russia to Brazil to Indonesia is just incredible. And you know this is still very much a, a movement in in progress. So mm-hmm. it's super exciting to bring this up to the um to the present day. And you know the the recent um you know, viral, um uh, progress of the um Chilean uh feminist chant Mirador en tu camino produced by um Lastesis the feminist collective in Chile but performed across the world you know in Mexico in the Turkish parliament in um uh in Britain and America in France um it, it's just been an extraordinary kind of mm. moment of global reuse if you like of a chant that has different different words different translations different meanings but which unifies people in a, a kind of feminist global imaginary. It, it it absolutely speaks to to what I've tried to do in this book.
1: Yeah, and this like unification. Well, and song is so important. It's such a place. Well, I mean, it's 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 how we discuss for millennia. It's how we we make sense of things, right, as a species. Mm. And it's a place still where women are are in a lot of ways excluded. I mean, I'm just thinking about the number of times you hear someone just casually say, "Like, mm, I don't really like to hear women's voices. I prefer male singers."
2: Yeah, well, that 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 speaks to me. I remember uh, one of the first um, experiences I had in, in a Cambridge college, where I sat down at a, a, like a celebration welcome dinner, and I happened to be sat next to the uh, the director of music of 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 that college, and I asked him, "How come it's just a, a male only choir in this college?" And he said, oh, it's because of the quality of women's voices. You know, they don't have quite the same purity of blah, blah, blah. Anyway, (laughs) and and I pushed him on it. And I said, you know, that just sounds absolute bonkers to me. You know, um, (laughs) it doesn't make any sense. In the end, I have to say, he kind of, he acknowledged that actually there's no reason why you couldn't have a a mixed-sex choir. And he said, no, really what it is is that – women are much more mature socially mature than men so if you had girls in the choir as well as boys it would kind of embarrass the boys because the boys are very juvenile and the girls are sort of grow up too quickly and you know so they would be a disruptive social influence oh, goodness. um and you know at that point i have to say i actually moved seats rather than stay, <laughs> stay in that conversation
1: yeah that wise choice oh okay yeah and the idea too. i mean and we're policing women in vocal fry and the way teenage girls talk it's it's a very, it's a very, God, yeah. I can't believe that. Well, okay. Women can sing, but it would upset the boys. <laughs> well done you that you didn't just like kick him in the shin.
2: <laughs> Probably <should have> done. <laughs> <laughs> Ethel, Ethel Smith, who's another um, uh, feminist composer who features in this book. She was um, very important to the uh, women's suffrage uh, movement in the, in early 20th century Britain. And she, she wrote um, a very famous feminist anthem called the March of the women and, um, she had an uh, an opera that she wrote performed at the met in new york in 1903 and um it was described by its reviewers as as, as quaint and feminine and then the met did not stage another opera written by a woman until 2016 so Jesus. yeah this question of women's exclusion <laughs> yeah. from kind of cultural resources and cultural power and the, and the tendency that there is to judge women's cultural um uh productions um, uh, you know, by some kind of different set of metrics that, you know, this is just by a woman. Um, this is very hardwired, I would say, in in, in lots of places uh, in a cultural sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. So you conclude your book with uh, global feminisms where you make some broad observations. Um, so this would be a good time now. Is there anything you'd like to say here to conclude our discussion of this book?
2: Well, I think um, just to, to kind of sum up, I guess this is a book that tries to both um, uh, provincialize and, and, and decenter um, Europe, but also sort of Anglo-American interpretations oh. of um, of feminisms, and it does that not um, not in a kind of doctrinaire sense. Right, it's not saying, oh, we can't look at Europe just because Europe's bad, but in a sense of saying um, actually European and um, American feminisms um developed very much in dialogue with these um other parts of the world that I do a lot of work with in the book you know places like the Philippines or Argentina and Chile or Japan um uh you know that there was a a a, a global conversation i don't think the global conversation is always as vivid and as um engaged across the whole kind of 250 years that the book covers i think we can pick out Moments, uh, decades, sometimes when the connections were very, very strong. So, thinking about the kind of the revolutionary moment of the late eighteenth century and the, and the wars of of that kind of turn of the century going into the nineteenth mm-hmm. century, that was a period where there was a lot of global debate and a kind of a global imaginary was very vivid. The eighteen forties, another incredible decade of of sort of revolutionary um, thinking, um, is another one that kind of jumps out. Um, N- about 1910 to 1920 it's an incredible period of, of revolt and again war um so so you know i think we can go back and say like here's bits where um uh where the where the debate is very strong and where where um connections are made very strongly but i mean as a as a as a as a broad um uh finding to discover that um we're not just pluralizing feminisms but we are actually picking out. Uh, shared tactics, shared ideas, the movement of texts, the movement of people, um, uh, was quite surprising to me. I thought that this might be a more um, divided, disjointed story uh, than it actually turned out to be. In fact, sometimes I thought, I just can't do this thematic organisation because how am I going to be able to bring together, um, you know, d- the different stories that you know might develop in, um, you know, in in Kenya or in Russia or in. Mm-hmm. Uh, japan, but it it actually always proved possible to craft a kind of narrative that 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 um that pointed out those those moments of of global simultaneity. And mm-hmm. you know we are right now today in at a moment of global simultaneity, right? We're facing mm-hmm. um we're facing the simultaneous rise of populisms. We're facing uh, a pandemic which is um you know both uniting and dividing mm-hmm. the world, but we're all experiencing it. Um, in different kinds of ways but at the same moment we're experiencing a kind of um uh, you know a, a climate emergency which uh, knows no national borders and um these things are um i think helping us to 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 ask those questions of our our histories right to ask where do you get these kinds of moments of global simultaneity and you, you definitely get that with women's movements uh, and feminisms and within that sort of larger remit of where is the thinking global if you like i also want not just to um provincialize europe but also to go down to the level of um individual um women and to point to the ways in which working class women um, women of color um women who've been marginalized by their refugee status or by um uh, colonial occupation you know they have often provided the um, both the intellectual and the activist leadership uh, in making change happen. So this is a book that puts those figures very much to the fore. Outstanding. All right. Um, so what's next? What are you working on now? Well, I mentioned feminist commerce, and I'm, I'm part mm-hmm. of a fantastic project called The Business of Women's Words, um, which is a collaboration um, uh, with the British Library, uh, which looks at feminist publishing in Britain in the um, 1970s looks at different kinds of models of, of feminist publishing and and tries to kind of unite that the activist feminist history, if you like, of, of Virago Press, of Spare Rib, and of um, uh, numerous other um, publishing projects. Um, tries to unite that with the, the business history of you know what is it to be an entrepreneur, what is it to provide employment uh, and create products and market and distribute um, those products. Um, so that was that's an interesting. Um, uh, learning process for me in in trying to understand better what the specific um economic context is for those um those feminist uh projects um and my other big project is um i'm very interested in the histories of um people with intellectual disabilities or learning disabilities mm-hmm. so i'm sort of going back to some of my labor history um mm-hmm. past to try to write um how people with uh, intellectual disabilities made their way in the labor market mm-hmm. and that's kind of mm-hmm. fun because people haven't really l- approached the, the topic historically from that direction very much they've always tended to be histories of sort of incarceration how did people get marooned in asylums and um, workhouses and, and and colonies and then how did they get out mm-hmm. um, that's been a really important story to tell but I think it's it's meant that the story of how did the majority of people with intellectual disabilities who were not institutionalized how did how did they, they live their lives how did they make a living so that's the that's another new project
1: oh that sounds very fun as well i guess fun's a sponsored relative word but very cool all right <laughs> thank you so lucy i've taken tons of your time so i think we'll uh, call this good but thank you so much for being on the show i've really enjoyed our chat it's an absolute pleasure it was lovely to talk with you yana Oh, wonderful. And I'll be getting in touch uh, for your next books. Thank you.
2: Take care. Bye-bye.